This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. The oil topping point, the day half the world's oil is used up, will be reached by many calculations very soon. In fact, it may already be upon us. When the financial markets realize what's happening, an economic crash and soaring energy prices will result. In his new book, The Empty Tank, Oil, Gas, Hot Air, and the Coming Global Financial Catastrophe, Jeremy Leggett explains how he became addicted to oil and why that addiction is leading us toward disaster. Leggett is an internationally renowned geologist and energy entrepreneur who's been described by Time magazine as one of the key players in putting the climate issue on the world agenda. Jeremy Leggett, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thank you. And how are you doing today? Very good. Oh, very good. Although it's very cold here in London. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, you know, you, you worked initially worked for Big Oil in the 1980s. Uh, what was that like? Did, was that a learning experience that brought you to where you are today? Did it uh, turn you off so much on the oil industry you wanted to do something about the situation? No, for most of the time I was very much one of them, um, heart and soul. I, it was, I found it very romantic. Um, I taught at one of the great training houses for the industry, the Royal School of Mines in London, and worked for uh, oil companies in Japan and Pakistan during the course of that and did research on oil source rocks funded by BP and Shell. So it wasn't until right towards the end of the 1980s that I I began to tune out, and, and it was the reading of some of the papers coming out of the Livermore Lab and you know, uh, NASA in in the States and the Met Office in the UK, the first results of the global circulation models on global climate change that made me worry so much about climate that I ultimately, you know, couldn't carry on what I was doing and became an environmental advocate working on climate. Did that for six years and then um, transitioned into trying to reinvent myself as an energy entrepreneur in renewables, the survival technologies as I think of them, uh, which I've also been doing for six years and I now run one of the fastest growing tech companies in the UK in this area. Now now you left Big Oil to uh, become an advocate for Greenpeace, is that correct? That's right, I work for Greenpeace International for six years um, just on the climate change issue. So I went to all the negotiating sessions for the Kyoto Protocol and worked opposite the lobbyists for the oil industry in all those multilateral negotiating sessions. Did, did you uh, run across anybody you knew from the old days when, from working for big oil there at the, uh, at the sessions? No, they, they tended to be uh, different types of people. I uh-huh. mean, the friends I had in the industry and have in the industry are more in exploration and production. And the people I met were sort of hitmen lobbyist types uh-huh. and um, altogether a different kettle of fish, very uh-huh. political, very clever manipulators of, of things um, in the negotiations, uh, very often with political science type of backgrounds rather than uh, geoscience backgrounds. 
Now, uh, just straight out, when will we uh, run out of oil? When when well, do you think we're think beginning to? Yeah, the uh, the uh, title of the book, the, the empty tank, is mm-hmm. it's sort of um, got a different title over here. You know, it's the same book, but on, uh, in the rest of the world, it's called Half Gone. Mm-hmm. And this is the point. Uh, it, oil, I don't think oil will ever run out. Oil will stay in the ground. And the crucial thing about what's coming up is not when it runs out. It's when we get to the halfway point and we transition from a world um, where we live with growing supplies of generally cheap oil to a world where we all of a sudden have rapidly shrinking supplies of ever more expensive oil. And um, that is something that our economies, our society is not expecting to happen for a couple of decades. And the oil companies and the oil industry tell us, uh, on the whole, that it won't happen for a couple of decades. And no need to worry, you know, the economies will be fine for a while and we'll have time to develop the alternatives. But many of us, uh, you know, within the industry, recently retired from the industry or having worked in the industry, uh, feel differently and are are sure that the topping point, the peak of production, is imminent. Is within sight. I have a couple of questions I want to ask you in terms of process. One is that the modeling technology that oil companies are using, geologists are using, is there any question, is there any, what sort of give and take in terms of margin of error are we looking at in terms of what they've, what they feel, or what you feel, I guess, a better way to put it, in terms of where, how close we are to the end, uh, to the middle point on oil? That's well, this is, this is a minority view. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not uh, in any way saying that the view I have is a, a majority one. Uh, most people in the industry profess to be comfortable mm-hmm. with uh, their chances of meeting demand for a long ways to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the caliber of the people who are beginning to blow the whistle that you know we really should worry about. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at if you look at the amount of money this industry now has with the persistently high oil price over the last few years and the incredible sophistication of the kit now. I mean, they can drill and produce oil in 6,000 feet of water. They can drill horizontally, um, on and on. Mm-hmm. You, you think to yourself, really, they, they ought to be, if there's plenty of oil left, they ought to be finding sizable oil fields fairly regularly. In actual fact, they're not. I mean, the industry is now finding mice instead of elephants, mm. diminishing numbers of them in ever further flung places. Yeah. And there's a kind of, uh, I don't see it as a, a great conspiracy, overarching conspiracy or anything like that. I see it as a culture of over-optimism. And this is an industry where, you know, people are very historically bullish and they say, yeah, we've solved problems before. We'll go out and find oil. And the the market situation is very dysfunctional as well in that every tiny discovery, the average size of oil fields found today is only 50 million barrels. And, you know, we're burning at 80, 84, 85 million barrels a day yeah. at could the you, moment. could put that in some sort of perspective as to what they'd found before, the 50 million today, but what would be a, a good size find in the past, say, well, um, giant oil fields are those over 500 million barrels. They're called they're called giant, 
But, um, of course, in actual fact, when you're burning at 84 million barrels a day, yeah. uh, that's not even a week's supply that's of global phenom- oil. That's a phenomenal number. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you look at the, the trend of discovery, Petroleum Review has summarized, the, the journal has summarized all these discoveries. They went from 16 or so discoveries in the year 2000, marching right downwards and, until 2003, it was the first year not a single giant oil field was, was found. And then the supergiants, over 5 billion barrels, um, almost all of them were found on the upside of the um, discovery curve. The discovery curve looks a bit like a very ragged upside-down bell. It's got an up escalator, a top of the hill, and a down escalator. Mm-hmm. The peak of discovery was as long ago as 1965. I mean, that, that, that's one to try on your friends. You know, yeah. if people... If people, um, you know, think there's plenty of oil, just ask them. With all the kit and money the industry has got, what was what was the year in which it, which it found most oil? And people are amazed generally to learn that it's it was way four. way back when the Beach Boys were active. <laughs> well, it was forty years ago, and mm. and that isn't certainly doesn't. It's not a harbinger of uh, of a, a happy days are here again, is it? No, no. What what will happen when we hit the uh, when people really do start catching on when when the uh, when it starts when when we do have an empty tank? Well, just is, to the to, to folks like uh, me and Mike here well, in Irvine. Well, what, what, well let, let me. I'm going to interject here. When when we when the world realizes that we're at the halfway point and we have literally hundreds of millions of more people wanting the oil that we yeah. currently have to ourselves, basically. Uh, it's going to cause a panic, isn't it? I mean, I know we're looking at a worldwide oil panic. I fear so. I mean, you know, the, particularly in the markets, the, the markets are prone to panic, as we yeah. as we all know. And um, you know, right now, all the oil traders in New York and London and their uh, backers are assuming that the story is as as they're told by the oil industry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, they're they're, they're liable to twitchy behavior over the oil price. That's why it stayed so high. There are 101 reasons why it's up in the 60 and $70 a barrel. Um, you know, it can be a bad day in Iraq. It, it can be civil unrest in Nigeria. It can be hurricanes in the Gulf. I mean, just because Mr. Putin in Russia goes on and on and on. Well, it could be, couldn't it be a well-placed mortar in one of the five installations in Saudi Arabia, one of the big Oh, reformers? well, you know, that's, uh, that's, I mean, cat- that's really a catastrophe scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if that happened. Yeah. Mm. But I'm sorry, I'm jumping all over your answer. But I, all my point is, is that I, I, the once you start into a panic situation, these market markets are tough to correct once they have a perception of something uh, of being, uh, you know, the future, isn't it? Yes. Now, you know, um, clearly in all this, I desperately hope the analysis is wrong. And, and in a bizarre way, one of, the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to sort of challenge people. I, I've, I've written it in a popular style. Mm-hmm. Many of the writings of the whistleblowers, I don't mean to cast aspersions here, but are pretty dense because it's a, you know, it's a dense subject. And I'm looking for um, people to somehow shoot this down because it, the chances are there would, there would be a, a real market collapse of the kind that we saw in... No, we didn't see. We heard about from our grandparents in um, October 1929, and that led to a prolonged depression and an awful lot of misery. Now, I really hope that that's not what happens, that the peak of production, I tend to think of it being 2008 plus or minus two years. So let's hope it's two years. Let's hope it's out there at the end of the decade. Let's hope that things like President Bush's 
um, you know, confession that hey, we are addicted to oil, you know, have some galvanizing effect, and people start massive programs of energy conservation because then there's a chance, of course, that we can maybe manufacture a soft landing, but. The sensible money is on a really hard landing as things stand. Yeah. And, and just for your information, if you haven't heard, uh, today the Bush, Bush people are backpedaling uh, with the oil industry about you know exactly what that means. And with the Iraqi – I mean with the, with the world oil market itself, they're basically saying – well, we really didn't mean it the way it sounded, and uh, <laughs> and uh, um, so. Uh, but yeah. the, there, so you're talking 2000. No, I'm going to ask a naive question. Um, and is it possible? Is it even within the realm of possibility that the oil companies were now enjoying incredibly high profits? I heard today something like thirty billion dollars for was it Exxon or Shell? I'm not sure which uh, for the quarter. Um, is it possible that they'll use some of this capital to begin to develop the kinds of resources that you, Jeremy Leggett, are involved in? By the way, let's remind our listeners to speak with Jeremy Leggett. Uh, would they, would they, are they interested in investing in solar and other alternative energy? Well, some of them. Um, Shell and BP certainly are. Um, yeah, and that is good. It's uh, it's encouraging. But as I say to the, these folks in the in the oil companies, whenever I get you know the chance to debate with them or discuss with them, guys, you are not showing. Don't pretend you're not showing the same entrepreneurial zeal on the frontiers of the solar and renewable revolution as you have for a hundred years on the frontiers of the hydrocarbon age. You know, um, there's a sense in which this is all what environmentalists call greenwash. Now, I'm not saying it's meaningless. It's certainly not. And uh, it, BP and Shell have, you know, both fessed up to the reality of global warming. Now, that's maybe an English uh, colloquialism, confessed to the uh, no, reality. We, we have of fessed up warming. over here. We have right. fessed up. <laughs> yeah. And um, they're, you know, they're, they're doing something about it in their own in their own domain, the real um, villains in the piece, of course, are ExxonMobil, and it's just unconscionable what what they've uh, been up to. And if I was a hired gun advisor to these companies, I'd be saying to the CEOs, um, you know, guys, you've got to be very careful here because um, when this happens, society is going to look back in anger. It, it has the ability to do that as um, Ken Lay is now fighting in <laughs> court in Houston. Um, and, you, you know, you, you've got to watch it. You, you can't go out there and say, don't worry, there's 40 years of oil. You know, even though you feel m impelled to do that, because if you don't, your share price will, uh, will be affected. There's more to life than your share price. Why did you single out Exxon as being the, uh, the consummate villain here? They, they have all through the history of the climate negotiations denied um, the reality of, of the climate threat in the face of increasing isolation. I mean, BP and Shell uh, withdrew from their, their support uh, for the global, this umbrella organization, the Global Climate Coalition, that all the oil companies for many years worked under at the climate negotiations. Uh, and confess to be, you know, really ashamed of some of the things that are done. Exxon carried right on funding it, and I'm going to say the L word. I mean, it it puts out lies, and or rather, it put out lies until 
its demise at the time that the Bush administration was was elected. Um, lies at worst and misinformation at um, at best. And you know, it's it's been appalling to see. And uh, they haven't changed that much. They've they've not spent very much at all on renewable energy. They say that it's got no role. Um, well, mm, that's their view. But over here in in Europe, many governments are producing reports that say um, you can run the world on renewable energy if you just get serious enough about it and use all of the many members of the family. Let me remind our listeners that we're speaking with Jeremy Leggett. He's the author of The Empty Tank, Oil, Gas, Hot Air, and the Coming Global Financial Catastrophe. Now, is that full title, um, that part of your title in, in the uh, on your book in Europe and other places? Or is no, I, I would say when I talk about the book, I would say don't, don't be fooled. Don't buy it twice. <laughs> the title over here is uh, almost exactly the same content. You know, some words are spelled differently. You guys have, yeah, a, labor. Have, a, have a funny way of spelling words. <laughs> Theater and those kind of yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it's the same book, and over here it's called Half Gone: mm-hmm. Oil, Gas, Hot Air, and the Global Coming Global Energy Crisis. Energy yeah. crisis. Oh, see, yeah. we we like money here. Right. <laughs> we like to what? That's going to affect my money? You're kidding. Yeah. Um, well, you, I was just going to ask about hybrid engines and uh, right. ultimately, ultimately hydrogen. Is that going to change the scenario here at all, or is that just a, a bandage on a? Well, no, 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 hydrogen has a great future, um, and there's all sorts of wonderful research being done on both sides of the Atlantic on, and in China on uh, on hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, one of the points I make in the book, you, you won't find a, a low-carbon or, or clean energy advocate more uh, enthusiastic than me, but um, even I cannot persuade myself that any combination of these alternative technologies will be enough to close the gap once we start going on the down escalator of declining um, oil production. And you, you know, I, wish, I wish I could persuade myself it was otherwise, but most of the technologies, uh, even the ones that are up and running, um, solar is a good example, fantastic potential. I mean, we could do so much with solar energy, but right now these are tiny, tiny niche markets, and there's no escaping that. Um, relative to the mainstream markets in fossil fuels. I was just going to say, you said we could do so much with solar energy. What what would you suggest right off the bat? If if, if uh, George Bush somehow woke up tomorrow and, and uh, had a, uh, a uh, complete change of heart, appointed you the uh, Secretary of Energy, what would be your first step? Well, the the first thing I'd, I'd try and get through would be um, – you know, a, a, an edict uh, which some cities now in Europe are actually doing and saying to developers, guys, I'm sorry, you, you, you're not going to put a building up, not a house, not an office block, not a shed. Uh, you're not putting anything up unless it's got tiny percentage of energy delivered on site. Mm-hmm. So 10%, something like that. Uh, from renewables on site. So it's not going to bust you at the bank. It's The rules are the same for everyone. There's no point in complaining. Your competitors are facing the same rule. And bingo, you'd have mass markets in this stuff yeah. overnight. 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings, directly and indirectly. Uh, lots of gas, lots of oil get uh, burnt in buildings for heating. Um, and you know you you would you would create mass markets overnight there'd be incredible excitement investors would pile in 
Um, and people would be amazed, amazed at how fast these survival technologies would knock fossil fuels off their perch uh, if that kind of thing was done. The other beneficiary, of course, would be energy efficiency because if you're mandated to uh, use renewables for 10% of the supply and renewables may, might be a little bit more expensive than fossil fuels currently, although fossil fuel prices are going up by the day, it seems. Yeah. Um, then why, what do you do? You The first thing you do is invest in low-cost energy efficiency to bring the target down because 10% of a small number is easier to hit than 10% of a big number. And, you know, that's leadership. That's simple leadership. And he, he could sell it so easily. Um, and Tony Blair as well. I mean, at least Bush has the excuse of of being an ideologue. Um, Blair, Blair doesn't. Blair professes to be really concerned about um, global climate change and these reasons for turning our backs on fossil fuels. Well, I it just... Uh you may know this, but in California, we just passed legislation which re- will require, uh, in the future, 10% of the homes built will be solar, have solar panels. And um, in that vein, uh, the back in the 70s when solar power was being discussed as a viable alternative, uh, the, uh, the, the argument always came back to the problem for, for companies to get involved is that when you have a decentralized energy source like solar panels on a person's home yes. you can't meter it you can't make money off of something that would essentially arrive to somebody for free other than the expense of the of the uh, the panels themselves well, so the, how are you how are you dealing with that how is that with your company well we i mean we're we're drowning in demand yeah. here in in Europe. Um, we, we do it a different way. Uh, mo- many countries in Europe have these so-called feed-in laws where what they do is um, the government mandates a levy on the entire rate base. So everyone pays a few cents extra on their electric bills. Nobody complains. It's only a tiny sum. But it's used to create a pool that's then doled out in uh, premium prices guaranteed for 20 years for solar electricity uh, generated and um, put into the gear, grid. So metering is important mm-hmm. in that in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's difficult for the utilities to make money um, from this specific uh, way of doing things, and so there tends to be some opposition there. That, that's why we do need a strong government initiative. We need something along the lines, for, as far as an American context is concerned, something along the lines of the space race that John Kennedy yes. challenged America to be yeah. on the moon in 10 years. That's what we need here in America is a, an, a, a, the same kind of challenge that in 10 or 15 years we can be independent, energy independent, whatever that uh, yes. we need. So. I think that's right. And it's a general point. I mean, what's so sadly missing in this whole business is leadership i mean genuine leadership there are it's so difficult to point around um and you know find people who did what kennedy did uh, at, at that time and create that kind of visionary mission which people can rally behind we don't have that in the united kingdom you sure um, surely don't have that in america you you have a leader who you know, so many of us over here think are, are t- is taking us all in a 
in an appallingly misguided direction. Well, we have a former oil man in, as president of the United States. I mean, it's it's, it's a frightening, it's a frightening possible scenario, and, and it couldn't ask for a worse scenario at a, at a, a most inopportune time. You know, I just do you think that the uh, well, the Armageddonists, as I call them, uh, have mm. anything to do with this too? Do you think there's just a uh, a, a feeling that? We've we've got to use what we have, and and we're all going to heaven you mean anyway. The end times yes, argument. Yes, it, it, it almost is a a, a self fulfilling prophecy here that that yes, there is going to be a catastrophe. You know, do, yeah. do you think that plays into this at all, or yeah, it, it's not a subject I know a great deal about, but uh-huh. I would certainly worry about that. I mean, I have I have heard that that is view in um, extreme evangelical yeah. quarters, but. You know, um, let, let, let's let's go to something more because <laughs> yeah. this is truly. I mean, it, this is a dark scenario in yeah. so many ways. And believe me, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know how much information you're inundated with about Bush. I think it's true. I think this guy is this just this side of uh, of irrational when it comes mm-hmm. to that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. and I I don't want to think too much. I want to think about the more dynamic thing, which seems to be going on in Europe. I want to talk a little bit. We're running short on time, so I want to get to some of the more positive developments sure. that you're involved in and in, sure. in, in, in Europe. Sure. Well, yes. I mean, and then <clears throat> that's what I try to do in the book. In the last chapter, I try and um, create a vision of of the uh, silver lining that the cloud can have, and I, I really believe that that is the case. If we get it right. On the second time round, we can really fashion a better better world because so many of these technologies, um, uh, you really foster uh, that kind of those kinds of improvements in society. You produce energy close to home. You have clean air. You you have all kinds of benefits spilling off. and it doesn't this come at a, 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 a again this this uh, this is an opportune time in the sense that you have hundreds of millions of people about to come online to the grid in these developing countries of China and Russia and India and in the in South uh, South Asia. So if we catch them as they're in the process of developing their economies with a clean uh, technology, doesn't that bode well for us? Is if we can get in line with that with that of development? Course. Yes. Of course, and so many other things. I mean, it ties into the population question um, many scholars of the population growth problem tell us that the single most important thing in dealing with it is female literacy and yeah. the single most important factor in that is um, electric lighting at night so that people can study and all the rest of it mm. and schools can operate after um, after dark now um, you know, you can do that with solar electricity because it's more economic in that context. You're competing with candles, kerosene, dry cell batteries, generators, that sort of thing. And and provided the channels of credit and distribution can be put in place, I mean, this technology is affordable now mm-hmm. by 400 million households in the developing world. So, you know, why on earth isn't that a, a, a massive global Manhattan project? My goodness me, what what problems we could solve for ourselves if we if we took that kind of uh, approach rather than um, 
foreign adventures well, we, uh, trying to secure oil by force of by by force of arms. Right, and then increasingly we're looking at a militarized uh, um, energy source with, with with oil. There's so many things about it. There's so many problems with oil and de- in development and, and securing it and the rest of it. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. And I again, I'm sorry, I haven't been reminding people enough. But Jeremy, this is, we've been speaking with Jeremy Leggett, the author of. In America, the empty tank, oil, gas, hot air, and the coming global financial catastrophe. You can go to Amazon. You can go to uh, your site, right? I assume you've got a a website. Yeah, carbonoir.co.uk. Okay. And you can get to that through Weekly Signals, which is weeklysignals.com. Uh, Jeremy Leggett, uh, I'd love to have you come back sometime in the future when 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 you're essentially lighting up Europe and uh, and America. So I look forward to to all of your future endeavors and thank you for being a part of Weekly Signals. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And this is Weekly Signals.